This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, starting in verse 1 through verse 5. Jesus said to his disciples, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is God's word. We are continuing uh, this morning examining God's plan for putting relationships back into one piece. Uh, Last week we talked about the first step the first practical step on how to do this, which was to glorify God. It was the first G, glorify God. We looked at how to glorify God where it's least expected, and that is broken relationships. People don't expect relationships that are broken to be mended again. They expect people to sweep things under the rug. They expect expect even Christians to avoid each other, be passive-aggressive, these sorts of things. Um, But hopefully... From last week, we we gained a resolve, a conviction to bring glory to him through tension and through conflict. So having done that, having resolved to bring glory to God, how do we begin to approach someone? That's what we're going to get into this morning. So our reading from Matthew 7 contains, really, step two. Step two, which is get the log out of my own eye. Get the log out. So here's where we're going to go this morning. I'll give you a little map for this morning's message. I'm going to make three brief points about what Jesus says, and then three longer points about how to apply it. But first, I want you to put your thinking caps on, friends. And we're going to take some moments to look at the New Testament's perspective on the world's most popular Bible verse, and and ask the question, does God tell us to judge? Time Magazine noted in 2007 in a cover story that only half of American adults can name one out of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And by the way, I say disclaimer, I'm using American statistics because Americans, we're like obsessed with statistics. We're obsessed with supersized drinks and statistics. That's what we love. (laughs) So uh, that's all I got. Another statistic, fewer than half of the same people surveyed could identify Genesis as the first book of the Bible. It just goes to show the Western world as a whole has kind of grown to be largely biblically illiterate. We just don't know the Bible as well. But there is one verse in the Bible that almost anyone, anyone knows. It's a, it's a Bible memory verse for virtually everyone, and that is here in Matthew 7.1, Judge not lest ye be judged. Or as many of our friends, co-workers, neighbors, family members might translate it, don't you judge me. Right? Don't judge me. Or why are you judging me? It's got a lot of different translations uh, from the Greek there. Now, I should say, out of necessity, we make judgments all the time. We make judgments all the time. For instance, uh, what time do I need to leave my place to get to church on time, right? That's a judgment. Another judgment is, you know, we look at the sky, and we judge, should I get an umbrella, 
today? Should I not? Uh, even people, you've got to judge. For instance, you know, I like how she got her hair done. I have similar hair. I judge it wise to visit the person from whom she gets her hair cut. Right? That is a judgment about a person. Jesus Christ even tells us this. He says to judge whether to consistently listen to a person's truth claims by the fruit that they bear in their life. He actually says this later on in the same chapter. Look at their fruit and know whether you should listen to them or not. So it's a big question. You know, does God really tell us to judge? Here he says not to. So we're going to look at, there, there are four variants. I looked into this this week, kind of in depth. There are four variants of the word judge in the New Testament. Each place in a slightly different context. There are judgments we aren't supposed to make and judgments that we are supposed to make. So first, judgments we aren't supposed to make. All right, I'm going to get a little into Greek words here, and, and you can take notes if you want, but kretis or kretes is a Greek word for judgment or judge, and it tends to be used for this sense of ultimate judgment, making an ultimate judgment of where a person stands with God. Like, eternally. All right, so we got that here in Matthew 7. We get that in other places as well. Like John 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's the idea of eternal judgment, where someone stands in relationship to God. Similarly, here in 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13, we actually get a little bit of a distinction, which is interesting. But this is from the New Living Translation. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, people who don't yet know Jesus, but it is certainly your job to judge those inside the church who are sinning in these ways, in ways that are harmful to other people. God will judge those on the outside. All right, so people who don't yet know Jesus, we're supposed to judge. The only time we're to make an ultimate judgment is about Jesus himself, interestingly enough. Jesus says in John 7.24, don't judge by mere appearances, he says, but judge rightly. He's talking about himself. People are judging Jesus based on what they see about Jesus, what, how they see him walking, how they see him loving sinners. He says, don't, don't judge about me that way, but get to know what I'm saying, the truth that I'm saying which is a judgment really as to where you stand with God. Are you in need of saving by this Savior? See that? Okay, but even worse is condemning a person for doing what you do. All you have to do is add a hupo to krites, and you get hupokrites, which, you know, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure out what that means. Uh, hypocrite, right? And we get that here in verse 5 of chapter 7. Right? You hypocrite. Worse than the first, because you are blind to your own need for a Savior, and you're in danger of no longer seeing your own need for a Savior, right? When you start saying, man, that person is doing this, so they probably are not a Christian. When realize, not realizing you do that yourself, that's great danger. So it's not so much making judgment that's wrong, it's passing judgment upon a person's, person's eternal standing with God. That's what it seems to be here in the New Testament, what it's communicating as a whole. Not so much, man, you know, man, I wonder if he or she knows Jesus, but man, they must not be a Christian. They do that. That's where we get into trouble. But there are judgments we are supposed to make. 
So for instance, uh, a Greek word here, diakrino, is to render a decision so that a matter is settled. Sometimes we have to do this as the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 6, 5, Paul actually says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? This is oftentimes when leaders and pastors are to get involved, settle a dispute between people. Can anyone do that? It's got to be done or else there's division. And there's dissension in the body of Christ. and it just, You see these cracks and people start to hurt each other. There's also anacrino, to discern. Especially as to what is true and what is not true. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15. Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's that word, anacrino. Spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. In each case there, anacrino is the idea discerned. What is true and what is not true. So we have some judgments to be made, but not about somebody's eternal position before God. So how does this actually work itself out in real life? I think the key lies in another verse, Hebrews 4, 12, where we get the final variant in the New Testament of judge, which is kritikos. Kritikos, from which we get, again, don't be rocket science here, critical. Kritikos, critical, criticism. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. In other words, very closely and hard to understand situations sometimes. Situations you can't necessarily understand on the surface. God's word pierces the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that word discerning there again, kritikos. God's word is like constructive criticism in its purest sense. If people say that, I just want to give you constructive criticism. Then you're often like, man, I feel like crud after hearing that. But this is constructive criticism in its purest sense. Real constructiveness from it. It reveals, God's word reveals something hard, but always in order to heal. It, it, It breaks down our thoughts, our assumptions, our attitudes, but always in order to build back up. So the lesson here, how we apply this to real life, is let God's word do the work. I want to look at one case about how this might apply. Okay, I'll give a very sort of blunt, obvious case. But maybe you're asking some dude at work, hey, how, how was your weekend? What did you do? He says, man, I spent most of it partying and getting wasted. Uh, that's what he says, all right? It's partying and getting wasted. Now, if that person has made it pretty clear they don't yet know Jesus, they aren't yet part of God's family, don't judge. Number one, it's not going to do much good. It's not actually going to be very helpful to give them some moral speech because morality doesn't change people. It doesn't. People have tried, believe me. A lot of Christians have tried. It doesn't change people, but also Jesus commands us not to. Instead, you may want to say to him, well, you know, at most, hey man, that's between you and God. Or, or even better, point to a greater escape than partying and alcohol. Because right? that's what people often do when they party and they consume tons of alcohol. They want to escape from something, escape from reality. So point them to a greater escape that's real in Jesus Christ. You might want to say, hey, you know what? I understand. 
I think we all had that inner need to escape from reality sometimes, from this world. That's why Jesus calls himself a door. Jesus calls himself a gate, a portal of sorts. In other words, he's an escape hatch. He's a prison break out of the death and normalcy of this world. It's really good for an escape, man. I hear you. I'm just saying I'm trying to find it in Jesus. You can too. That's one idea. Speak God's word. He's a door. He's a gate. Then let God's word go to work. If they do know Jesus, make a judgment according to God's word, first of all, whether drunkenness is wrong. Okay, just in your mind, with God's spirit, from his word. Is drunkenness wrong? Is it against what God wills? Is God who saved me? Also discern whether or not to confront that person at that time with God's word. You might want to ask questions like, you know, is this a one-time thing? Did it hurt others? Did it affect his or her witness for the gospel? Then leave it to God's word, right? Maybe you want to, if so, and you need to bring it up, lovingly bring up Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, which says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. <laughs> it's hard, I know, to say that word. <laughs> but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So you might want to say, look, hey man, you know, God's word, Ephesians 5, says, don't get drunk with wine. I, but his, God's intention is for us to, to celebrate, to enjoy life, to like talk about God, even to sing, man, to enjoy his presence. What do you think of that? That's a good way to bring it up. It's hard. I'm not, not saying it's easy. But, but at that point, leave it. Don't judge where that leaves a person with God. Don't be thinking, man, why would, why would they do such a thing? Or, man, how can I stop that, what they're doing? God uses his word to constructively criticize thoughts and intentions, to reveal, but always in order to heal. And that prevents us, by the way, from confronting a person according to our opinions, according to our preferences, according to what we're annoyed by. All right? You ever done that? That's annoying. I think I'm going to confront the person. (laughs) That's not a good reason to confront someone. God's word, give it to someone, leave it there. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus is not talking about judging a person, you know, whether they've done something right or wrong, but he's judging a person's eternal position before God based on what they do. To not do that. So, that's where we're at this morning. Three brief points about here what, what Jesus says. All right? First of all, peacemaking begins and ends with the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you not be judged, for the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, is this all really all about grace? Really, Ryan? What kind of crazy interpretive gymnastics are you doing here? Uh, yes, this is part of our mission statement, so it's always nice to say anything begins and ends with the grace of Jesus Christ. But the ultimate point in this statement that Jesus makes isn't so much to consider how much you've judged, but rather how much God will judge you. Jesus says this in a a remarkable way. Because the rest of the New Testament does say, hey, you're going to be judged according to God's standard. According to everything he says, you're going to be judged. But it's as if Jesus says here, forget God's standard for a moment. Put it to his side for a moment. What if I judged you What if I judged your eternal destiny according to your own standards? Interesting, isn't it? 
Francis Schaeffer used to refer to this as the invisible tape recorder that we would hang around our neck. Imagine if you had a tape recorder, you hung it around your neck, and it only records the thoughts we think and the words we say about how others should live and how others should behave. On the last day, God turns off the recorder. He stops it. He says, you know, I'll be completely fair. I will only judge based on your own words. All right, so I decided to subject myself to pain and torture this week. And I tried this using a smartphone because Francis Schaeffer lived like 30 years ago. So, you know, we don't have like tape recorders much anymore. But I used a smartphone to record my judgmental thoughts. All right, mostly in my head, thank, thank the Lord. <laughs> they didn't come out of my mouth. Um, here are some highlights. All right, I want to be honest and share with you. Rather kind of low lights, I guess. Um, I wish that person would be more consistent. There's one. Uh, recorded that. Uh, I wish you were not so swayed by your emotions. wish you were not so swayed by your emotions. Uh, man, I wish that person would ask for wise counsel before the decision, rather than making a decision and asking for wise counsel afterward to confirm it. Basically looking for a yes man. All right, um, that was one I had. Why do you only have friendships with the same kind of people? That was one I had in my mind. You know, same nationality, same interests, and these are all your friends. Finally, why do you cut in line? Why did that just happen? As I reviewed these later, Wednesday night, just played it back. God hit me with my own inconsistency. He hit me with a number of things. First, with my own inconsistency, especially in thinking and praying for others. Here you go. Judging based on your own standard, Ryan. Uh, I, I, he brought to mind how I can be moody and I can withdraw from people sometimes. You know? So, again, uh, swayed by my emotions. I can't... I, was reminded how I recently came back from a trip from the States a couple months ago, particularly from this trip, thinking how much immediately easier and more comfortable I am with American relationships. I didn't say better. I actually find um, diversity of relationships much richer and deeper, but they're immediately easier and more comfortable with people from my own nationality. Okay, there it is again. Friendships the same kind of people. See what happens here? If you even take your own thoughts and your own judgments, apply them to yourself, you kind of get one of those gulp moments. Thankfully, Jesus and his mercy does not judge me according to even my own standards. Rather, Jesus has taken on what was supposed to be my just judgment. Right, that Jesus Christ is the judge who rules justly against my sin. Then he steps down from the bench as a judge, and takes the punishment in my place. What a great scene. By trusting my life to him, my eternal destiny is no longer dictated by my standards. Neither then should be the eternal destiny of others, right, in my own mind. So that's the first thing. Second thing here we see in Jesus' teaching is that an obstructed view probably isn't helping. Verses 3 through 5, let's look at that real quick here. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log 
in your eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Jesus was a carpenter. You may be well aware in his early years. So he knew that while a speck of sawdust in his eye was annoying, it didn't prevent him from seeing the giant logs of wood in front of him with which he was going to build a neighbor's house. He didn't have that nice eyewear that he could just put on there. So he knew the annoyance of that speck, but he could still see the logs five feet in front of him. So he's saying, look, imagine one of those logs being in your eye. Where's the speck now? When I lived in Chicago, Illinois, the United States, I used to watch games, uh, baseball games, the Major League Baseball team, the Chicago Cubs. It was one of the teams there in Chicago. And it's at a 100-year-old stadium named Wrigley Field. Really cool. I won't get into that, though. Uh, but occasionally I would get free tickets to go. Uh, but often free tickets had some extra suspicious-looking writing on them. As right, so you got the ticket printed out, it had some interesting writing. And I remember looking down and thinking, what does OBS mean? in capital letters. What does OBS mean? And I found out quickly, when I arrived at my seat, that meant obstructed view. OBS. And I remember, as the game went on, I was a a friend of mine, and I was was commenting as if I knew what was actually happening in the game, like specific things in a baseball game, like the, the pitcher and the strike zone and what looked like a ball or what looked like a strike based on the height of the ball. And uh, at one point, my friend said, seriously, dude, stop. You can't even see row P in front of you, much less the actual home plate. All right, so stop pretending that you can see that, that small thing there. And I think much of our life is that way. And we know there is something to be seen or said to our brother in Christ, but how can we really see it very well when we have this large obstruction in front of us? We say, oh, no, I know, I, I can see their fall. I'm going I'm to approach them, I'm going to point this out. Really? How in the world can you see it? There's this giant thing in front of you. Jesus is saying, first take care of the obstructed view. First take care of that. And then finally, don't forget to deal with the speck. It's interesting, Jesus never says here, deal with the obstructed view speck will take care of itself. doesn't say that, does he? At the end here, verse 5, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And this ties back into Hebrews 4, letting God's word do the work of constructive criticism. Having let God's word go to work in your own life, lovingly release it into your brother or sister's life without all the commentary, without all of your opinion to muck it up. So I think this morning, here's here's sort of the key question, I think, to ask ourselves in a nutshell. It's this. How can I show Jesus' work of grace in me by taking my share of the responsibility for this conflict? How can I show that Jesus is at work at me by taking my share of the responsibility in this conflict or in this tension? And I know, friends, I fully recognize there are a lot of cases where the other person is 95% wrong. Maybe in reality, or you feel that way. I mean, that person's mostly wrong. And you, you've just got the 5%. 
You got the 5%, and I'm encouraging you to even still strive just for the deep work of grace that God is doing in you by being the first to admit the 5%. You go first. How do I do this practically? How do we practically get rid of log? We'll spend our rest of our time here. And it's probably wise to do these steps in this order as I describe them. First things first, where am I logged at? Figure that out. Where am I logged at? Undergo some self-examination. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Point it out, God. Put your thumb on that sore spot. Often find there's something in me that offends God, as this verse says. And when we find something that offends God, we've got to recognize sometimes it's going to be offending to others. In fact, that's often the case. And there are no shortcuts found here. King David, who is the psalmist who writes this, knows from hard experience, hard, hard experience, that no, there's no life to be found in just trying not to think about it. Just, just sweep it under the rug. I just try not to think about my offenses. There's no life there. There's no path of everlasting life to be found in sweeping things under the rug. We've got to point it out on that sore. How do we do this? A couple ways. We play back the tape recorder. Like I mentioned earlier, self-examination based on your own judgments. Okay? But if you're not quite ready to go there, if you don't, or maybe you just don't have a smartphone or recorder you want to use, I don't know, or, or something to write down, you can do it the old-fashioned way, which is to daily go under the knife. Self-examination based on the sword of God, the Word of God, specifically the Ten Commandments. Uh, Martin Luther, great reformer and one of my heroes, used to begin every day with the Ten Commandments in hand. And he would use them to reveal the thoughts and the actions and the motives of his heart from the previous day. Notice I said there, not just the actions, but the thoughts he had and the motives he had for doing even good actions, which sometimes are done for vanity, for self-glory, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And so what, what actually I've done is in the back today, I have a handout back there. Um, it's Ten Commandments, and there's some reflection questions under each commandment to think about now how does this apply to how I live my life. So I've got about 15, 20 of those back there if you want to grab on the way out and want to do that yourself like Luther did. But when he examined his heart, Luther found many logs there because the Holy Spirit used his word to expose them, but so he could be forgiven by Christ. So he could be healed by that same word. And then he could see clearly with dealing other specks all day long. This week, I know I personally had to get rid of a couple sizable logs from my own eye. And one was revealed by going through the Ten Commandments. I didn't even think about it until I read through what does it mean to covet? What does it mean to put God first and have no other gods before him? Oof. It's humbling, friends. It's just humbling. There's no, there's no way around that. I mean, it, I often compare it to a couple of teenage years of mine when my face was pimply and purply, you know, and I was forced to go into an old high school gym for co-ed PE. 
You know what I'm saying? And they had those, those fluorescent buzzing lights. Remember those things? And like old gyms and things. And they, they come down on your face and you're a teenager and you're like, ah. And I had that experience as a teenager. It was always very humbling. And that's kind of how it feels doing this. But the good news is the Holy Spirit, yes, he will expose wrong beliefs, thoughts, actions, motives. But the light that reveals is the light that heals. Let me just mention a couple specific offenses I think we should be asking the Spirit's help to expose, especially when it comes to peacemaking. A couple specific ones. I know you're thinking, tell me more, Ryan. I want to hear more about sin. Of course, I will indulge you. All right, bitterness, unforgiveness, especially in peacemaking. Is there something I find myself just not able to let go? And maybe, maybe I find it myself saying it in conversation, even. As a wise man once said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. Another one, gossip. Gossip is, uh, Ken Zandi in his great book, uh, Peacemakers, he defined gossip as it's to betray a confidence or to discuss unfavorable personal facts about another person with someone who is neither part of the problem nor its solution. Let me read that again. Uh, to betray a confidence, discuss unfavorable personal facts about a person, sorry, about another person with someone who is neither part of the problem or its solution. And that excludes a lot of people, I would say. <laughs> Here's the good news, friends. Jesus, through the apostle John, says this, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess these things, if we get rid of this law, if we remove it, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Let that sink in for a moment. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I mean, it should read, when we hear just, God is just to forgive sins. It should read, you know, God is just to walk away from us a long time ago. For every time we walked away from him, God is fair, he's just. He walks away from us. That's how it should read, but be, because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, it can actually say God is just to forgive our sins. That's amazing, isn't it? Second thing, second. Let's get second thing, second. Removing the log. Uh, if discovering the hard truth of where your log's at is hard and painful, so is actually removing the log. I got to say, I have enjoyed renting a home. I enjoy home rental. Uh, in part because I'm not particularly a handy person, as a homeowner, all right, I like to be able to call the landlord and ask for certain things. Uh, I'm just not handy. Now, I, I mean, I can handle duct tape like a pro. Wicked, at different colors, different strengths of duct tape. It's amazing. But in terms of actual mechanical things, not so good. But also in part because our first and so far only homeowner's experience, Katie and I, was where we lived in northern Florida, and we had this huge windstorm, first few months of living there, and something hit the roof above our heads where we were sleeping. I mean, just hit hard. Boom! I first mistook it for one of these donkey-sized squirrels that lived in our yard. Oh, it's just, it's just pouncing something. In the United States squirrels are like iguanas here, you know? Um, I didn't go out to look till much later in, in the morning, and I, there in my roof I found the wind had installed for us a new perfectly erect log. It was like just, just there, kind of a T-bone shape. 
And uh, someone walking nearby, walking their dog, looked at it, kind of squinted and asked, is that a a second chimney? (laughs) No. (laughs) And getting it out was was a complete pain. I mean, I required every ounce of puny strength, not as huge as I am now. Um, Every ounce of puny strength, six bricks, six bricks and a poncho. That's what, that was the temporary solution. All the while, the neighbor just kept standing there and watching me, you know, as I worked the bricks and the poncho. It is no less easy and absolutely more humbling to remove sin in front of a neighbor. That's what God asks us to do before we look at his spec. That's what we've got to do. So if we're going to do it, and it's hard, and it's humbling, we might as well get it right the first time. Here's the seven A's of confession. I'm just going to go through them quickly. Write down for later for reflection. Seven A's of confession. This is also from uh, Peacemaker's Ministry. Number one, address everyone involved. If you've got to get a log out, address everyone involved. If you want to look at a great scripture passage on this process, look at Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus who defrauds a lot of people and how he practices peacemaking, getting the log out of his own eye. Address everyone involved. That's what Zacchaeus did. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe in your apology. If, but, and maybe. As Pastor Tony Evans heard once say, if it contains an excuse, it ain't a confession. But tries to cancel everything that went before it in the apology. Or another way to think of it is, but tries to butt out everything that went before it. It just kind of, right, gets that out of the way. It like, just gets rid of the apology. Takes away its effectiveness. Avoid those statements and apologies. Admit specifically. Don't be vague. Eh, you know, sometimes I'm just not a good person. I'm not very nice. Sorry. What? What did you, I, I don't know what just happened. Specific. Acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge that it actually pains somebody. That's not easy to forgive. And you know that. Number five, fifth A, accept the consequences. For instance, in Luke 19, Zacchaeus is willing to make things right with those he cheated. Sometimes when you confess something to someone, it involves making something right. Maybe you stole from them. Maybe, maybe you um, wronged them in a way that you can make restitution for. Sometimes you can't. Or sometimes the restitution is the next time they might be a little wary trusting you. And you just got to recognize that might happen might happen. Accept the consequences. Number six, alter your behavior. Before God, just ask him for help being determined not to do this again to this person. Maybe it's a habit in terms of how you treated this person. It might be a spouse. It might be a child. It might be a good friend, and you know it's a habit. Ask God for help. I'm going to change this. Number seven, ask for forgiveness. Actually, verbally ask, man. So that's the second thing. Let's get the third thing's third. Here's the last one. Who, who patches up the hole where the log used to be? Who patches up that giant hole where log used to be? Because it leaves a gaping hole, as it did on my roof. What if the other person won't forgive? So one way to patch up the hole, the person forgive you. But what if the person doesn't forgive? Man, that's hard, isn't it? A sincere confession met with Anger, or even worse sometimes, silence. person doesn't say anything. But here's, I think, where we are often tested as to our motives. Am I doing this for me, to feel better about myself, to feel like I've paid for my wrongdoing, 
Or am I doing it to glorify God and minister grace to that person? That's a big question. But here are some things you can do. Number one, pray. Just ask God for help. We're going to be doing this 12 hours fighting for uh, fighting in prayer and for peace because peace is just hard. Pray. Number two, ask. Was my confession adequate? You know, did I really go through the, the steps there, the seven steps, the seven A's of confession? Number three, ask. Have I followed through on my commitments? If I committed something to that person, in that apology, in that confession, have I following through on those things? Number four, allow time. It's the eighth A, if you will. I'm not a believer, friends, and time heals all wounds, but time combined with a humble apology can. Let's pray. Father, we um, confess that we have dealt hurt to people. And in part, Lord, it's because we had this big log in our own eye, and maybe we criticized someone, Lord, without removing that log. We hurt them. Maybe, Father, we just hurt people in other ways, ignoring them, avoiding them. Maybe it was a, a joke that we meant to be funny, but in reality, we kind of know that maybe that person accepted that well, maybe they didn't probably apologize. Cutting remark, a habit, a pattern in a relationship. Father, whatever that is this morning, help us first remember the ultimate destiny of all this. Healing, forgiveness, wholeness. If not through the other person, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether it's God's word confronting us and then always to heal us, like constructive criticism. Whether it's just knowing, I mean, I, I need to get this. I need to say this. And as the Holy Spirit administers to our hearts, he forgives us. And that's the end goal, but it's going to take a little pain. It's going to take a little cut. It's going to take a finger on a wound. It's going to take that feeling of a light shining on a purpley face. It's going to hurt. Give us the courage and the strength and the faith to go to someone, Lord, whoever that is this week, a neighbor, a friend, someone here in this building today, and humbly confess sin. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.